is to read through the entire Gospel of Mark once a week, uh, if you can. Um, at least, perhaps, to you know, read what we've just been studying, the whole chapter or the, the upcoming chapter. Uh, parenthetical vision plug, by the way. Uh, parenthetical vision plug for habit number four. Pray and study your Bible is one of our nine habits. Uh, because we just believe that growing Christians and growing churches pray and study their Bibles. Like it's just a, it's a habit. It's just a, a thing they do. Like it's just a habit for those who grow. Check out ninehabits.org for more um, if you want information on that. End of parenthetical vision plug. So if you've been reading Mark with us throughout this series, uh, we've been encouraging you to read the whole gospel or to read the chapter we just studied or the chapter upcoming. So 14 for this week, 15 for next week. But if you've been doing that with us, you probably noticed a couple things as you're reading through the gospel of Mark. A couple things. Mark is very fast moving in his storytelling style. And he also, because of that, can leave you a, a little jolted uh, at times, leave, leave you feeling a little surprised about wh- what happens along the way. It's like there's a lot going on from story to story to story in a way that sometimes feels sort of random and, and disjointed, like this happened and this happened and this happened. And then you read all of those <laughs> uh, even multiple times like I have, and you think, wait, what just happened? <laughs> uh, reading Mark is a bit like being dropped onto a a moving roller coaster. Uh, And and there are hills and loops and twists and turns, all at this breakneck speed that can feel sort of hard to keep up with. So it's sometimes hard in Mark uh, to understand clearly the main point that he's making and how these various little stories along the way fit together. The text we just read in 1 through 11 is a lot like that. It's a lot like that roller coaster feeling. You begin, as you're reading along the first couple of verses, you think you can follow where Mark's headed. In fact, if you're reading Mark, you can think, oh, this has been, this has been coming for a while. I see where he's headed here. And then, boom, we get to verse 3, and it's like, well, wait a second. <laughs> how to get to Bailton? That's kind of how you feel about it. Like, I was here, and now I'm over there. If you're new, and maybe you're not from Greene County, uh, Belton is... That way. Yes, that way, right? Yes. <laughs> and it's spelled B-A-I-L-E-Y-T-O-N. When I first heard locals talking about Belton out there, I thought, what, what does a belt have to do with an area in Greene County? B-E-L-T-O-N is how I heard it. So, so you'll be reading along in Mark and feel like, how did I get to Belton? Baileyton. Good question. It's a good question. So strap in, like, Pull on your overhead seatbelt thing and uh, buckle up because there are some twists and turns along the way here. So jump in at verse 1, Mark 14. He says this, a lot of great stuff to get to here. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now this is the biggest Jewish festival of the year. Most estimates are that the population of Jerusalem was 40 to 50,000 or so and that it would go up to a quarter million uh, and perhaps even more for this week of Passover. One source claimed uh, that over 255,000 lambs would have been sacrificed for just one day of the whole Passover week. Uh, Some of those numbers have been called into question by modern uh, historians as overly generous, but I mean, how many thousands of lambs does it take in one day to constitute a lot, right? For me, one thousand seems like a lot. (laughs) 
So, so a lot's going on here in Jerusalem at the time because of this Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were a big deal. Lots of people, lots of lambs. Two days before Passover, Mark tells us here, lambs are being sacrificed. And I don't mean to be weird here, but if you're in that area, the stench of, of death and blood uh, are literally in the air. So he says this, two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, keep reading verse 1, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Ah, that's what, that's what all us Christians think. It's time for the once for all sacrifice of the Lamb, capital L. I mean, it's time for Jesus to die, right? Like he's setting the scene for us. It's Passover week. Jesus is going to the cross. The stench of death and blood are in the air. Mark's setting us up, at least we think, initially for the next turn. He's telling us where the roller coaster's headed here. So we keep reading verse 2. It says this, For they said, Not during the feast. The chief priests, the scribes, were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar. From the people. Now, this isn't too di- too different from what we've been seeing in Mark the last few chapters. Jesus has been in conflict with the religious leaders and the temple throughout chapters 11, 12, and 13. And here in verses 1 and 2, just as Jesus had earlier predicted in chapter 8, 9, and 10, the chief priests and the scribe were seeking to kill him and to betray him. So Mark reintroduces this theme in keeping with what precedes in Mark. We know the Passover week's coming up. The stench of blood and death are in the air. We think it's time for Jesus, the once for all lamb to be slain. But then Mark goes an entirely different direction. This is one of those jolting moments where the roller coaster suddenly changes. And we thought it was headed one way, but something else is inserted entirely. Look at verse nine, uh, sorry, 3, 3 through 9 here. It says, while he, meaning Jesus, of course, while he was at Bethany... In the house of Simon the leopard, Bethany is a suburb a couple of miles from Jerusalem. He was reclining at table, it says in verse 3, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, Mark tells us, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So Jesus and the disciples are... uh, eating a pleasant dinner, a pleasant dinner together, having time in this together before the Passover week stuff happens. And this unnamed woman comes in with a fancy perfumed ointment, which at first, for the record, is a pretty serious breach of etiquette. Uh, A woman doesn't just intrude into this all-male fellowship dinner, uh, typically in that time, unless they were serving the food. I mean, that's just the way it was then. But secondly, she anoints Jesus' head with a a fancy perfumed ointment uh, that was worth, as we'll see in verse 5 here, something on the order of a year's wages. We're talking at least something like $45,000 in uh, modern American dollars. So as Mark tells us here this was very costly. Many scholars think it was likely some sort of a a family heirloom. 
since women in that time were by and large uh, excluded from careers that meant that kind of buying power. It's probably something she inherited. It was probably a family heirloom of some type. And notice this. Notice that Mark says she broke the flask. A flask like this would have held larger quantities of a perfumed ointment like this and usually would have been uh, doled out, sort of used just a little bit at a time. A flask like this would have had an opening where you could have just used a little bit at a time. But notice that Mark makes clear she breaks the flask wide open. This, for her, was a one-time deal. She was not going to be using this flask again. It was a one-time thing. This was a total commitment. Mark wants to make clear that we understand that this was an all-out gift of luxurious, luxurious generosity. So here we are reading Mark. First couple of verses, setting up. The Passover lamb has come to be slain. And then we have this account of the woman intruding on Jesus and the disciples having a nice fellowship dinner, time together over a meal. What in the world does uh, an intrusive, anonymous woman pouring costly perfume ointment over Jesus have to do with Betrayal and killing and sacrifice. It's a good question. Keep reading. Verse 4. It says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, again, this is Jesus with the disciples there, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, 300 days wages, and given to the poor. And then it says this, They scolded her. The disciples think that this is a scandal, of course. <laughs> they perceive this as a, as a waste of God's resources. Like somebody worked for that. <laughs> the disciples see this scene, this woman, and they sort of think, come on, let's do this following Jesus thing with some decorum, please. Some moderation if you will. <laughs> but Mark says they scolded her. The word that Mark uses here means to flare the nostrils in anger. I mean, they see this scene, they go, what a waste! You could have done so much more with that. I hear myself in that. Do you? What a waste. You could have done so much more with all that. But look at Jesus' response. Verse 6. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. And he says this. But, in contrast, you will not always have me. Now, this is not an indictment or a lessening of the value or the status of, of the poor. Not at all. This is more of a statement about Jesus. You will not always have me. He, he puts himself 
forward here with, with a scandalous prominence that blew the disciples' minds. You see, what they don't realize is that they have not only just demeaned this woman, but they have likewise demeaned Jesus. I mean, think about it. Is Jesus not worthy of that kind of extravagance? Listen, if if it had been an earthly king, surrounded by wealth and power and prestige and extravagance that would, that would make this woman's sacrifice look like nothing, they wouldn't have thought a thing of it. They wouldn't have thought a thing of that kind of sacrifice for an earthly king had that happened. And yet here they are going, you could have done so much more with that. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus continues... He says, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. Uh, Jesus used uh, almost the same wording earlier in Mark 12 uh, to speak of the woman whose gift at the temple uh, was two of the smallest coins in circulation at the time. Many think that Jesus has intentionally used the same kind of wording here in Mark 14 about the, the woman using the ointment and the poor women in chapter 12. Because he says they they receive the same praise here functionally. I mean, he's intentionally using the same kind of verbiage to put them on the same level, which means it's not about the amount of the gift, but the motive and the intent behind it, and the one being praised through it. He says, she has done what she could. Keep reading verse 8. She has anointed my body beforehand. Look at that. She has anointed my body beforehand beforehand for burial. As we'll keep seeing here in a bit here, Mark 14 is all about betrayal. Um, and pretty much the entire chapter is filled with betrayal after betrayal after betrayal. Right after this, throughout Mark 14, we see that betrayal continues. Just keep looking along at those passages with me here. After Judas betrays Jesus, the Passover with the disciples. He says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is in verse 18. One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They all began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I, is it I, is it I? During the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my body. It's going to be sacrificed for you. And so they go out to the Mount of Olives. And and, and Peter, Peter says in response to Jesus saying that you're all going to betray me, he says, I won't deny you no matter what. Jesus, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the rest of the disciples said the same, it says in verse 31. As Jesus is praying Gethsemane, he says, just just." Just hang on with me a little longer. Just just watch with me a little longer. And they all fall asleep. The betrayal becomes more explicit. Judas comes. The betrayal and arrest of Jesus before the council. Peter himself three times denying Jesus. The rest of the entire chapter is pretty much about nothing but betrayal. 
And it says in verse 8, she has done what she could. She, she alone has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She alone understands what's going on here. She is preparing Jesus for what he's about to do. I mean, by the time he would be on the cross, only a very small handful of followers would be by his side. He would soon be betrayed by just by everyone around him. Some of them had been with him for quite a while, listened to his teaching, quote, understood what he came to do. The crowds would flee, the disciples would scatter, but this unnamed woman anoints Jesus' body beforehand for burial. She gets something the others didn't. Which is why he says, truly, I say to you, verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The value of a gift is a signal of the value the person giving the gift places on the person to whom the gift is given. It's just true in life. The value of a gift is a signal of the value the person giving the gift places on the person receiving the gift. Of, of all those present at this meal, including disciples who have been learning about Jesus, following Jesus, who should have known better. They had all the vocabulary. They wore the t-shirt. They showed up on Sunday. They had the bumper sticker. Of all those around Jesus, this anonymous woman values Jesus most and loved him for the sacrifice he was about to make for her as Savior. She knows even at this point Jesus is the King and he is headed to a death on her behalf. So she expresses her, her love for Jesus. And as Jesus even knew then, we're still talking about it today. In contrast, in contrast, go back to verses 1 and 2 functionally because really we're going to look at 10 and 11, but it's the same kind of theme as 1 and 2. Another strange turn. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Now press pause for just a second here. Mark isn't just telling us Hey, by the way, Judas was one of the twelve. <laughs> He's telling us something quite, quite profound here. Apparently, proximity to and time with Jesus is no guarantee for saving faith. Proximity to and time around Jesus is no guarantee for saving faith. To see who Jesus really is takes the kind of humility and love that this woman demonstrates in her sacrifice. Wearing the t-shirt and the bumper sticker and showing up on Sundays isn't what does it. True spiritual insight into who Jesus is and what he came to do requires a humble faith to believe Jesus at his word. He had been predicting this time and again. 
telling his, his closest followers that his death and betrayal were at hand, but they didn't catch it. They didn't listen. This unnamed woman, who probably spent much less time with Jesus than Judas, comes to prepare Jesus' body before his death with a gift of great value. And a disciple who had spent quite a bit of time with Jesus could probably tell us more about the Scriptures than any of us know. Sold him out to the ones who were about to crucify him. This woman understood, even before the cross, that the Gospel would be realized. The Gospel would be made real only in suffering. Whereas this supposedly close follower of Jesus saw suffering as beneath Jesus. What a contrast. So verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, to betray Jesus, to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Apparently proximity to and time with Jesus is no guarantee of spiritual insight and understanding, friends. Seeing Jesus for who he really is requires the humility to value him as Lord and Savior. Seeing Jesus for who he really is requires the humility that values him as Lord and Savior. This anonymous woman gives an extravagant gift because she understood that what Jesus was about to do for her was a gift given that was beyond price. She, she didn't just open the flask and dab a little bit so as to not use it all. Isn't that what we do so often? Here you go, Jesus. Boop. Just little dabs. Little dabs from a flask. She didn't just open the flask. She broke it. And she filled that room with a fragrance that overwhelmed it with the aroma of love that she had for a Savior who was going to do what she couldn't. This is a woman who loved Jesus. This is a woman who understood that only a Savior who dies, a perfect lamb sacrificed for her, would make available the freedom that she truly needed. Friends, maybe it's time for some of us to just break open the flask. Maybe you've been rationing out your love and commitment for Jesus in, in little doses that you can manage and handle. You see, that's not how this works. Maybe it's time to stop giving 
little piddly commitments that are safe for you to Jesus just kind of here and there. I mean, if that's you, you're sitting in the seat the disciples sat in. Look at this. Look at this crazy lady. Get some civility, woman. Where's your decorum? (laughs) Listen, friends, following Jesus cannot be done piecemeal. This isn't done on your earthly terms a little dab at a time. Following Christ is a break open the flask commitment. Following Jesus takes everything because He gave everything. To do so otherwise is to make Him in your image. And that's a Savior who doesn't save. Let's pray.